Well, I have a treat for you today. John Lafferty is going to be bringing the word. And I want to I just say a, a word about John. He, um, he has a teacher's heart. I think he has a pastor's heart. He is very skilled, and he is good at, uh, at teaching Sunday school. Those, who, those of you who show up early for that can attest to that. And so I wanted to give him the opportunity to, uh, in addition to teaching, to preach, because it's, it's a different animal. And so, John, I know you've studied for this. Uh, I know you've prepared. And so uh, I know you're going to bless these people with, with the word that you uh, have for them today. So come on up. Well, thank you very much, Pastor Aaron. That's very kind. I can't remember the last time I was called to preach, so I appreciate that. I am bringing a treat this morning. Anytime we have an opportunity to get together to open the Word of God, it is truly a treat. It is refreshing to our hearts and to our souls. And so thankful this morning to be able to open it uh, for you this morning. Um, just as Pastor Aaron said, and by way of further introduction, um, I align with what he said, and I'm thankful for that introduction. Um, as part of the pulpit ministry at, here at Snoqualmie Valley, by amount of attention, amount of attention, you are familiar with this. You are familiar with this type of rhetoric. This type of rhetoric, and its promises, manly, worldly promises, promises. No matter how many times we hear these endless promises of peace, we still find our sea in this congregation to open your word. Thankful for those, like Pastor Aaron mentioned, in the reading of scripture and the prayer time, who are willing to go forward in the opposition to this world. And choose to proclaim your gospel. Thankful that even in our country, we have judges who have upheld in California the right to assemble, the right to worship you privately and publicly. Lord, I know a day is coming where opposition grows stronger. On the evening of that day, I'm using the ESV, John 20, 19. On the secular, specifically, peace, reconciliation silence and agreement. It is a feeling. It's a feeling of I am at peace with you. We are not feeling hostility. Objectively, peace in the secular definition is a state of being. It is we are at peace with one another. We're not actively mutual definition. Well, first of all, we know that peace is an attribute of God. I believe all scripture study should start with looking at who God is. And so we will do that now. An attribute is a, is a moral attribute of God. Like goodness, love, mercy, holiness, righteousness, jealousy, and Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders went of Israel went up. And they saw the God of Israel. And they beheld God and ate and drank. God uses communion with man to display peace. The Lord's Supper looks forward to a more wonderful fellowship meal as well. We can see and we can long to look for the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 9, 19, 9. Here in the Lord's Supper, the resurrection and God gives us an active parable that is laid out to show how Jesus' earthly mission and work culminates in the sharing of peace by breaking bread and by sharing drink. As Jesus' body is broken, he convocates a new covenant in his blood. 
in three years of being with Jesus, walking with Jesus, learning from Jesus, eating, laughing, and traveling with Jesus day by day. And the final moments culminated with Jesus of the disciples. He gives them a sign of peace. This is a great crescendo that leads up to this picture. So symbolically, communion represents means of peace with God. Let's also define spiritual peace as eternal. Spiritual peace as eternal. This is a more objective form of peace. Romans 5.1 is our proof text for this. If you want to do some quick finger calisthenics and get there with me, we can read it together. Romans 5, 1 through 5 is what will be in the next two points. So, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So once we are justified, we have judicial peace with God. We have hope in the final reality that God is at peace with us. So if God is not at peace with you today, it's because you have not repented of your sin and called upon Christ to be your Savior, your King, your Messiah. And on the other hand, if you have called upon Jesus to be your Savior, King, your Messiah, you have peace with God. Whether or not you feel peaceful, calm, or ordered, you still have it. It is a state of being. That's the eternal peace that we have. We'll look into that more in a second. And also, let's define the temporal peace. I know this day and age is the reason why I picked the study of peace in and of itself, and it's led me down many more abundant studies of what God does for us. But I know that this is a time when believers in America lack temporal peace. And this is the main reason I picked this topic for you to listen to and for me to study. It is more subjective. Paul sets forth God's sequential plan on how to have peace in the moment, starting Romans 5, 3. He says, not only that, not only are we justified through our relationship with Jesus before God's sight, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and the endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us? So let me ask you, do you find that to be true in your life? Do you rejoice in sufferings knowing that is an opportunity to confirm the hope that he has been given, that he has given lies within you? A mature Christian will be able to handle the storm of life and its trials held up by Christ's strength. They will not look inside themselves. They will keep their eyes fixed solely on Jesus, just as when Jesus walked on the water and he told Peter, keep your eyes on me. And when Peter doubted and took his eyes off Jesus, he sank. We are to keep our eyes on Jesus and thereby acknowledge his control over all things, even our temporal circumstances, even the waves around us that assail our peace. So in conclusion of the definition of my intro here, what is peace? What is peace? It is objectively more than the absence of hostility between groups or nations. It is subjectively more than a sense of well-being or tranquility. It is relationally more than peace within yourself. And God himself has set up a symbol to act a parable of breaking bread and drinking wine with himself for the believer. Spiritual peace is the restoration of relationship with God. A right relationship with God will give the follower of Jesus peace. 
When God says, it is good between you and me, you have peace. We can be back in the state where he created us, in the garden, naked, unashamed, and unafraid in his presence. To be intimately known and to be eternally loved by God is true peace. Jesus' peace is his presence. Jesus' peace is his very presence. His physical presence. Let's look back at John 20, verse 19. And on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Jesus stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. So it's not so much that this is the first church service. It's not so much this is three days after Jesus had been crucified, and it's not so much that this is the first Easter. Those are facts to this story that we can't lose context of. But uh, resurrected, the resurrected, glorified, bodily return of Christ looks like he appears where he wants to appear, which is even behind locked doors. <laughs> Now, the disciples have been given commands by Jesus during his ministry with them. They're very familiar with them, and we'll bring those commands up here in a second. But Jesus is here to reinforce them. Many times in the Old Testament, when glorified, resurrected beings, well, glorified beings, I shouldn't say resurrected beings, in the Old Testament, when glorified beings appeared to humans, they were awestruck. And the angels, or the Christophanies, had to speak peace to the people because they were too awestruck to listen too confused to understand. And this is where we define, we find the disciples. Too confused to understand what's going on. Jesus, I thought you died, and here you are in your resurrected body, walking through walls. Right? That's pretty, I mean, yeah, I would be scared too. My, my sense of peace would not be like, when Jesus said, shalom, I'd be like, hey, shalom. What? You know, <laughs> it's Jesus. You know him. You intimately have walked with him, and he's dead, and now he's back. All the times that he told you that he was going to die and return, which was three times alone in the account of Matthew, you said, okay. I, I, even the last time Matthew accounted, he said that, Jesus says, I am going to my Father, but I'll come back to you. And the disciples said to him, oh, you're speaking plainly now. We understand you. And Jesus goes, oh, do you? Do you understand me? Right? Otherwise, they would have anticipated his earthly return and the heavenly kingdom, not a heavenly return in an earthly kingdom. But they got him confused. They got him confused. So Jesus' presence brings peace. He reiterates it. He says, peace be with you in verse 19. Shows him his hands and feet. Gives him the proof of who he is. And then in verse 21, he says again, anything that is repeated in Scripture is very important. And it's very important for the disciples because they didn't get it the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth time. He says it again, right? I am God. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. So let's rewind. If you find yourself in a situation where something dramatic happened, you'll remember what happened last time. For instance, the upper room where the disciples are hiding. Some scholars believe this is the same upper room where the Last Supper was held. Personally, I think that that interpretation can be valuable because if we look back the last time they were together in an upper room, the doors weren't locked and Jesus was with them. 
And what does he do? Like I explained in communion earlier, he gives a symbol of his body being broken. But what does he say? He gives a symbol, and what does he say? He says peace to them. If you look at John 16, 33. John 16, 33. He doesn't just give them a symbol. He gives them a word. He said, he's talking about how he's going back to the Father and how he's coming back to them. He tells them how they're not going to believe him, how they're going to be scattered. They're all going to abandon him. And he said, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Are people who have peace a scattered flock? No. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So this is the last thing he says to them in the upper room before he's crucified, before he is buried, before he is resurrected. And now again, we see just three days later, the very first thing he does is pick back up where he left off in his teaching ministry. He is now glorified. His scars are healed, and he stands before them and says, peace. This is significant and very important because he's saying, I have overcome the world, and this is your peace. It's not just me. It's more than just my presence that makes you feel comfortable, that makes you feel safe, that makes you feel secure. But it is what I have done what Christ has done for us. So, Jesus' peace assures eternal life, never fearing death. I believe when he speaks this word of peace, in their minds would have echoed John 3.15, which says, whoever believes in Christ will have eternal life. Speaking of eternal life, he is talking about specifically presence with God, which we're going back to peace, presence with God can either be a good thing or a bad thing. Presence with Jesus here, to them, is probably drawing out their doubts, right? What have I, what, how have they been acting since he left them? They've been acting in fear of the Jews presently, but they all scattered when he was taken. Paul, I mean Peter, acted out in violence when he was taken. John followed him all the way to his trial. And then when he was accused of being one of the disciples, he left his robe in the accuser's hands and fled. All of them have been scattered. And yet, they find themselves in the presence of God again. Well, whoever believes in Christ will have eternal life also indicates an absence of death. So the presence of God and an absence of death. If you have an absence of death, you have an absence of conflict with the world. Because the worst thing the world can do the worst thing that world can do is kill you. The verb have in this verse refers to present reality and condition, not in the future or past. We are to live in the reality of the eternal life of Christ. Not, I had it at one point and it's gone. Not, I will have it in the future and I don't have it now. It is the current reality of eternal life. This is a doctrine of grace. This is a very foundational verse for the teaching of the eternal security of the believer. Once we have Christ, we never lose him. Not because of our good works, because of his work in us. Eternal peace reaches into this life from eternity. 
The reference to eternal life in this verse pertains to the quality of life. For community, for communion with God, community with God begins with regeneration, repentance, and faith. And that improves the quality of life we have. Reference to eternal life in this verse also pertains from duration of life, a never-ending life. Eternal life doesn't begin when you die. It begins the moment you are saved. And Jesus has worked it out for the disciples to hear that now. So let us remember, this is a quote from Dr. Steve Lawson, what is settled in eternity, what Christ has done in eternity, cannot be undone in time. As soon as we are saved, we hold this truth fast. There is no way our sin can undo the goodness of Jesus Christ. And that should be a comfort to you this morning. Because we know that Jesus' peace comes in his presence, let's look back at the text and see what's next. His presence isn't the only thing he gives us. He gives us, in John chapter 20, verse 21, he gives them a mission. Jesus' peace is a mission. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. The Father sent me even so I am sending you. If you were going to break down this passage and find the most important phrase in this passage, I believe it's I am sending you. I believe that this is very much a missional passage. Jesus doesn't just send us to do his bidding when he won't do it himself. I need you guys to know that. Jesus is our example. Jesus does not ask his followers to do things he has not done himself. He will not go, he will ask you to go where he has not gone before you, is another way of saying that. reason we know this is because in John 6, 44, he says, the Father who sent me. We know that Jesus doesn't ask us to go into a world of sin, to a world of conflict, to a world of turmoil, to a world of war with Satan, without him first entering it. He left his home in heaven, peace within the Trinitarian Godhead, to come into a world of sin. He is our example in that way. He, many times through John's gospel, John refers to Jesus, or John records Jesus saying, I am the sent one, the one who the Father has sent. And because he is sent by the Father, he brings the peace from the Trinity, where there is no sin, and he brings that peace to us, both eternal peace and temporal peace. He is sending us into that. The second thing that we need to know about what, what I send you means is Jesus' peace acts in reconciliation. It acts in reconciliation, meaning that peace is the foundation for reconciliation. And reconciliation is the active, relational outflow of Jesus' peace. I am sending you. I am calling you.
God, I serve knows only how to triumph. 